Good morning, all. It's October 21st, autumn day here in Bethesda, Maryland. We're so lucky to have with us a global leader in cardiology and cardiology research. Dr. Jim Januzzi has been a member of the Massachusetts General Hospital Cardiology Division since 2000. Currently, he's director, Dennis and Marilyn Barry Fellowship in Cardiology Research. In addition, Jim is the Hutter Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and is on faculty at the Harvard Clinical Research Institute. Many people will say that Jim is a huge reason why MGH is the number one research hospital in America and the only hospital to be recognized in all 16 specialties assessed by US News and World Report. Jim, so great to have you here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Jim. Again, my great pleasure. And more importantly about Jim, I might add, is despite being the least athletic six foot, six inch tall person on the planet, you told me, you're a Red Sox fan, also their cardiologist, speak Italian, and guitar playing rock star by night. Is any of that true? Uh, so, so all of that's true, the most notable of which is the fact that I'm built like a linebacker but have absolutely zero athletic talent. And ironically enough, despite that fact, I'm one of the team physicians for the Boston Red Sox for the past 15 years. So I have the job that most people who are on sports teams their entire life would kill for, and I'm the one that actually was able to get the job. <laughs> well, that's awesome, and they're lucky to have you. So here are the most important questions we're going to address today in the, in the dialogue. Ready? Favorite Red Sox moment? Oh, easy. So there are many, but Game 2, 2013 American League Championship Series, Red Sox-Tigers. We had lost Game 1. We were being no-hit into the sixth inning. It was the bottom of the eighth. We were losing 4 to nothing. David Ortiz came up with the bases loaded, hit a home run on the first pitch. I've never seen Fenway come alive like it did that moment. And although there have been many great moments, that to me was one of the most memorable in, in so many ways, particularly since... I was in the most foul mood the whole game because we were just playing so badly. I kept saying to my wife, it was the bottom of the eighth, I kept saying to her, let's go. This is not going to go well. And she insisted on staying. And when that happened, and then we eventually went on to win the game, that really turned the whole series around for us. Bravo, Roberta, I say. Yeah, on exactly. that note. <laughs> Okay, ready? How about this one? Fettuccini or Capellini? Oh, Capellini, no question. Fettuccini is okay. too heavy. <laughs> Pink Floyd or The Who? Oh, The Who, no question. So I'm a hard rock guitarist. I love Pink Floyd for easy listening, but there's nothing like making the eardrums bleed. Awesome. Glad we covered that tough stuff. Now let's get to our leadership discussion today. The theme might be giving back through mentorship. Jim, I know one of the many aspects of your role, one of the things you're passionate about is developing others. And you do it in so many ways. You've impacted thousands of early career physicians indirectly through talks locally, nationally, internationally. You've had the opportunity to work closely with over 30 mentees. Correct me on any of that. This requires extra time and attention in addition to your other responsibilities. So we'd love to hear about what, who inspired you as an early career physician and how do you inspire others today? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, mentoring is something that can be learned, but often comes organically from people that are really wired for it. And one of the things that I really appreciated early on was to be able to have the shoulders upon which I could stand and achieve the goals that I wanted to get to. And my earliest mentor was my father, actually. He's a physician. I aspired to be just like him. He taught me a lot, made sure that I wanted it, that I really wanted to be a physician. And then once it was clear that my goals were sound, he really helped me understand what it would take. And 
following, I would say, my college experience, I, I met with an investigator named Jan Breslow at the Rockefeller University when I was graduating from college. And what's important to emphasize here is that I, I had a pretty mediocre college experience, which is a little bit disconnected from my goals of going to medical school. But, you know, I there were maturity issues uh, going through college. And coming out of Holy Cross, where I went to college, I had the intention of going to medical school, but needed to take some time. Dr. Breslow hired me to his lab with a two-year commitment with the idea that on the other side, I'd apply for medical school. Almost immediately, he saw that I was ready for responsibility and put a lot of faith in me and gave me responsibilities that far exceeded my level at the time, gave me my own project, which was uh, actually came out to be my first manuscript now out of six, more than 650 papers. And he really launched the academic side for me. It's that kind of faith in someone who may not necessarily have shown what it takes up to that point, but recognizing that that person is ready now is the sign of a person who's a mentor, someone who can recognize that a person could use a boost um, to help them. And, and indeed, one of the things that I've tried to do through my mentoring career, which is probably far more than the 30 people you mentioned, just because I've worked with so many people on sort of an ad hoc mentoring basis, there are times when I actually really do appreciate helping out the underdog you know, and someone who might not have that pedigree coming up to the moment, but who is ready now. For me, there's no greater sense of satisfaction than seeing someone like that succeed. That's a great story. If I may go back to, he showed faith in you. What did that elicit in you? Oh, it, it activated a desire to work even harder. The mentoring process is a reciprocal one. Mentors invest faith, time, money in their mentee, and there has to be some form of payback. You know, when I say have to, I mean, there really has to be. And if that doesn't happen, then obviously that's a failed relationship. And so, you know, I worked even harder. I saw the opportunity, but interestingly, unlike many trainees who sort of see the opportunity and sort of say, I'm going to do this to get what I need or get what I want. I saw it as an opportunity to follow through on the faith that he put in me. And and that really actually was the first time that I, I really had that kind of work ethic that now is a part of me every day. And subsequently, after working in his lab, I went to medical school and graduated first in my class. And so, you know, I went from a spotty college record to being first in my class from wire to wire, from the first test in first year of medical school all the way to the fourth year. Wow. When somebody shows that kind of faith in you, does it, does it scare you at all? Is it daunting? Depends on the person. Dr. Breslow was an imposing figure, but he was also a kind and gentle soul. And, and I sort of, I did not feel necessarily intimidated. I felt, if anything, a sense of purpose. You know, you used a couple of words. He was a kind and, and gentle soul. You know, in one of our previous discussions, Jim, you talked about different types of mentors you had. Today, you mentioned your dad. You mentioned him. Who was, did you have any emotional mentors? You know, in my in my family, it's sort of interesting. My mom worked with my dad many, many, many years and understood well the stresses of a medical career. And, and she was always very helpful as a sounding board at a time when, you know, I mean, what do I know as a 20-something-year-old about what the realities really are all about? My dad was always very good that way also. And, and then, of course, you know, as you go through medical training, it, you know, your colleagues are also an opportunity, uh, present opportunities for, for both emotional, social, and moral support. 
Yes, for sure. And you know, one thing that I realize I, I failed to mention in your introduction, of course, you've spent many years as a, a board member with the ACC. And so again, you have great expertise clinically, operationally, financially, and again, we talked about emotionally. A couple of times in the past, we've even talked about the amygdala hijack, the emotional hijack <laughs> from <laughs> yeah. Tim Goldman. Any thoughts and reactions just to that concept? Well, you know, um, now we're fast forwarding many years, right? Life is in some ways a, an opportunity for trial and error to recognize how to encounter a problem, encounter a difficult situation and, and how to manage it. And, and I've learned a lot over the years, including a huge amount from, from you, Jim, actually, about the way to interact uh, in difficult and stressful situations with people that may or may not share the same points of view. And one interesting thing that I always struggle with through the years, you know, I could look at the sky and see blue and another person could look at the sky and see another color, you know, you know, aqua or whatever. And, and that whole point of, well, why are they seeing something differently, even though we're looking at the exact same thing, coming to understand how different personalities interpret similar things, I think has been a really important growth experience for me because it, it helps to head off conflict. It helps me to manage conflict. And it also helps me to recognize when I'm feeling uncomfortable with the situation. And so it helps me to be introspective as well. Yeah. Well, thanks to you. I think I would offer part of your success. One of the many reasons is just your own candor and your ability to kind of be, you know, kind of raw with yourself on that. Because what we're getting to, of course, is, you know, how do you use all of this? And you've shared this often with me. How do you share, use all of this to inspire others today? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so thanks for asking. So, you know, inspiring others to me is, it varies from leader or mentor from one to the next. Some people are different personality constructs that are more inspirational from how they talk or, or how they make people feel. I'm very much the type of leader or mentor that's that rolls up their sleeves and really gets right into the mix. I feel that while that may limit my ability to have a group of 100 people working with me or, or for me, it helps to inspire perhaps a smaller number of people to have that same type of lead by example type of profile. And in truth, it's who I am personality wise, as I've come to learn. So it's a perfect fit, right? You know, if, if I'm the type of person who wants to roll up their sleeves and be in the mix, learn something well, and then really become very dominant in terms of understanding what needs to be done and teaching what needs to be done. And people are interested in working with someone like that. It's a perfect win-win. It's a, it basically, that's what makes mentoring easy for me because I'm basically doing my job. Yeah. Great stuff there. In the mentoring process, do you want to mention anything else about accomplishments that you're proud of? To me, mentoring is as I said, it's a, re it's a reciprocal experience where the mentor benefits, but one of the benefits of being a mentor is seeing others succeed. And the concept of mentorship versus sponsorship, they're, they're interrelated, they're tied together. Mentorship is in part teaching and guiding and preparing someone to be independent, but without sponsorship, which is essentially kicking the door open, you know, for someone, a person can, can work for years and years and years and years and have a great CV and look great on paper, but have never had the opportunities that I was given. And to me, that's my responsibility as well. So, and it can range anywhere from for me, what I would say is something relatively small, like being asked to do a lecture 
but saying, yeah, you know, I could do that, but how about so-and-so? And then asking them to take on one of my, my mentees. Committees at the national and international level, speaking opportunities for the public, extolling the virtues of someone when they do a good job in social media out publicly. These are all important things that I think some mentors don't recognize as being important in, in 2020, but times have changed. And what matters relative to how people are perceived has changed. And so to me, that sponsorship aspect of things is so critically important. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been so grateful to see so many of my mentees go on to achieve their dreams, their goals. And it can be hard, Jim, because sometimes a person may you know, be moving along well, doing a great job with me, and then all of a sudden say, you know what, I'm interested in something totally unrelated to what you're doing. And it's not my place, if provided that the idea is a good one, and I see that it's not going to be to be a catastrophic career move, and it never, it never is. It's not my place to, to say no, obviously. And I refer to this as, you know, pushing someone out of the nest. I've had several people go on to things that are tangential at best to what I do and succeed greatly. What I can in my capacity at that time is to offer them professional and spiritual advice about how not to make missteps and throw my political clout in when I can to help them from a funding perspective, even if it's something I would never work on. Those kinds of things are important to me. It's a lifelong, a lifelong commitment. And I continue to support previous mentees decades later when, when and if they need. Well, great points there. And all I can say, Jim, is that I've had the wonderful pleasure to have worked with some of your mentees. And I just know that they have loved, loved having you as their mentor and continue to do so. So I know you have a, a huge audience out there who are so appreciative of you. A mini shift. Now let's go back to the beginning of this year and, and the pandemic. You said, you know, MGH leadership did a lot right about the, the pandemic. So we made a distinction between sponsorship and leadership. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, at a time when there's so much sadness, anger, frustration with leadership on a national level with respect to how the pandemic has been managed, sometimes it's the big positives that go unrecognized. And I'll give you the example of Massachusetts General Hospital and the other hospitals in Boston. In early March, we were looking at what was going on in Europe with some degree of anxiety. And then things started happening in New York. And, and I'll remind people that in New York City, it became a nightly occurrence that ambulances would be wailing as they go, you know, were driving down the avenues. And all of the hospitals in New York were overrun. Patients were on ventilators and hallways, and the ICUs were full. And and this leads obviously to the potential that COVID-19 might cause a death, not only because of the severity of illness, but because of the fact that the medical system can be overwhelmed. And with a great amount of urgency, the hospital systems in Boston prepared for the possibility of a comparable surge in, in Boston, as was seen in New York. But we had no idea if it was or wasn't going to happen, I mean, quite frankly. The fact that they prepared the way they did was fortuitous because we were then crushed about two weeks later by a comparable wave of patients. And what goes unrecognized to this day is that because of the preparations, which included cancellation of clinics, cancellation of elective surgeries, cancellation of money-making procedures that caused the hospitals 
in Boston to lose billions of dollars, we were ready. And when patients started surging in, we had, for example, at the Massachusetts General Hospital, 11 intensive care units prepared. We closed cancer floors. We prepared the gift shop to be an overflow ICU if needed. As a consequence, we were never overmatched. We were ready for the patients that arrived. And although we were down to close to our last ventilator at, at peak, we were able to manage. And to me, that kind of leadership, that altruistic leadership where it gutted us financially, but it prepared us for the medical mission that we were about to undertake is something that I think I will never forget. When we think about Again, all of the frustration about the chaos at the national level, the denialism of science, the fact that we had a science-based approach for how we manage things and we made it through with a mortality rate that was literally 50% lower than was reported in Europe, to me is something that should go down in the history books. Now, we're not out of this yet, but we're ready for surge number two, should it occur. Great leadership example, Jim. Well, great stuff to you and team for that. We're in our home stretch on this discussion today. You touched on medical mission. We're in an unprecedented time of misinformation. How does that impact you, caregivers, patients in healthcare, and how should that be handled? Yeah, the COVID-19 pandemic has created a lot of, I would say, unexpected problems, one of which is the denialism of science, the misinformation that's happening. This has eroded the public's confidence, I would say, I fear, with respect to the medical system. One thing that is pretty clear about science is that if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't have research to try to understand how to make things better. And science evolves. Our understanding evolves. And the COVID-19 pandemic is a great pressure test for that point, which is we knew nothing about this virus 10 months ago. And we've gone from knowing nothing about it to understanding not only nuances of virology that previously had never been understood, but we've learned a lot about public safety, about prevention, the fact that masks actually do seem to work, even though there wasn't any data before. And this evolution of understanding is something that I think the public really gets frustrated about because they say, well, wait a minute, you said masks didn't work. Well, we didn't know. And now we do. And that's the point about medicine that will always be frustrating for some, but for me, something that is so attractive, which is that there's always something to learn. And as we learn, we get better. And so my hope is that as we move through this unprecedented time, that the public's faith in the healthcare system and in science can be restored. That's a great point. That takes us to my last question for you for today. And that is, so Today, Jim, what makes an ideal leader? Everyone has their own opinion. One thing I've learned in doing media is to never open up a statement with, I think, because who cares what I think? You know, speak with the certainty of an expert in the field. But here's the answer, Jim. I think a good leader is someone who inspires others to lead. That fit may not be perfect from one person to the next. The ideal fit between a mentor and a mentee is individualized. To me, someone who inspires others to take on the role as mentor and to bring others forward, to give them the shoulders to stand on like I was provided during my training, during my development as a young physician, is the ideal mentor. Some mentors are very transactional, and there are people who are okay with that. I don't view it that way. A mentor, to me, is lifelong. 
it's, it's much more than just that in that short-term transaction of give me some research to do i'll write some papers and move on you know to me it's uh it's a very different relationship well incredible insights there jim and for this from this whole discussion thank you Wishing you and your family continued good health and wellness during this crazy pandemic. Even though I'm not in your community in, in Boston, they're so lucky to have you and, and your teams. Thanks so much for the, the gracious time you spent with us today, Jim. Great, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. It's really been enjoyable.